Computing Broadcast, a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. So this week, uh, you know, I dive into something that's a little unusual for me. Uh, we are going to talk with food historian Emmeline Rood about the history of chicken. She wrote this great book called Tastes Like Chicken, A History of America's Favorite Bird. And I, I got to tell you, this is one of those books that I, I had no idea the cultural, historical, social, spiritual, political significance of the chicken, of the average barnyard chicken. For such an unassuming bird, you are going to be amazed at how many times they pop up their goofy little heads throughout history and how involved they've been in, in, in human culture almost since the beginning of time. That, that's no hyperbole. So uh, we got a lot to cover, so let's get right into this with Emmeline Rude. Emmeline, thank you so much for being on the show today. I have to ask you one question. This is really important uh, before we start this whole thing off. Uh, are you related to Ravishing Rick Rude? No, I don't know who that is. Do you want to be? He's incredible. <laughs> uh, who is he first? <laughs> well, well, you don't know who he is? You really have never heard of Ravishing Rick Rude? Yeah. He's a pro wrestler, like one of the best of all time. Uh, I'll Google him. No, I have no idea. You should. There's lot, yeah, there's a lot of Rudes. Apparently, it's like a, a bastard name. Oh, like Jon Snow, kind of? Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's really cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, Ravishing Recruits, he's awesome. You're not going to like his mustache, I'm guessing, unless you're, I don't know if you're into mustaches or not, but he's got a very Tom Selleck kind of 70s adult film like like a mustache. But, Amazing. Uh, but he's he's one of the best wrestlers of all time. Um, <laughs> uh, be, best neck breaker in the business, as they say. Obviously, you did this great book on the history of chicken. I mean, everyone knows that. It's a great book. But you've done some other pretty crazy, written some pretty crazy articles, um, not the least of which is an article about how people want to eat themselves, uh, <laughs> which is which is kind of crazy. Cause I did an episode on the Donner Party, which is obviously, um, and I learned, I learned a new word thanks to you. I'm going to see if I can use it in a sentence. Um, autophagia, uh, people who eat themselves, that's, that's, what, that's what your article's on. But the Donner Party, that's anthropophagy. Is that right? I think I think anthropoph yeah, anthropophagy. Anthropophagy. Which is people who eat thy neighbor, which I thought that was pretty incredible. Um so are are you mentioned a, a, a term in there called cannibal curious. Uh it, are you cannibal curious? Is that how you got interested in this? Have you eaten human flesh before or do you plan to? Probably not. I'm a vegetarian, so I think that's a, an extra leap. <laughs> right. But, You're jumping over the, the, the more accepted forms of meat eating. Yeah. I mean, I'll eat meat sometimes, but in general, I try to stick to the plants. Plants and cheese. <laughs> <laughs> well, how did you, so how did you get into, um, how did you get into that, that particular article? Like what, what was the inspiration for that? I can't, I, that was, that was the first article I'd ever written in my entire life. So that was a, a long time ago. Um, I can't remember. 
Well, you, did, you did an, uh, an article about how the Nazis helped to build the chicken industry, and that was that was two years before the the human. I mean, I see a pattern here. You know, the Nazis and, and, and cannibalism. I'm sure there's a tie there somewhere. Um, but but you were writing some pretty crazy stuff before that, or do I have my timeline off? Oh, they the I think that was on Vice, and they they repost articles. Oh, I see. The cannibalism. I think it's because I was reading. There's this crazy New York Times article where their food writer, can't remember when it was, 1920s or 1930s. He just took it upon himself to go to the morgue and get a slice of a body and just see what it tasted like. And I remember reading that and thinking that was bold. I wonder if the New York Times paid his bill on that one. Um, huh. But yeah, he said it tasted like veal or pork. Kind of like a light red meat. So, there's a couple of things in that article that I thought were really bizarre because I I don't think I didn't know that that was possible. Like number one, I didn't know you could just like roll down to the morgue and like ask for a choice cut of. I think that was know. a different a different time. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I know that you can't do that today. But one of them, one of the things you mentioned, there was um uh, like um what do you, a performance artist in the UK who um, like did kind of the same thing. He was the first person to, he, he claims, legally eat human bodies in public, oh, um, yeah. which is kind of the same thing. But then, then you mentioned uh, the first person who ate themselves was a guy who's like lost his finger in a motorcycle accident. Oh, yeah. Just, I remember this... I actually found him on Facebook, and I tried to interview him, but he only responded, uh, money. <laughs> so oh, I wow. So I him. Um, but yeah, he just, he lost his fingers, motor accident, motorcycle accident, couldn't figure out what to do with it. So he's meh, maybe I'll eat it. And so that's what he did. He boiled it up and took bites. Well, besides that being totally like, that's totally bizarre, uh, especially in our current cultural state. But I didn't think you could just like lose an appendage in the hospital, be like, oh, you want a bag for that or you want me to attach it? You know, I mean, I didn't think you had options. I thought they either put it on or they dispose of it, you know, with medical waste. You can actually ask to come home with your dismembered finger. I don't, I guess so. I mean, I'm not a medical professional. In my my mind, I think they'd probably dispose of it properly, but I guess it's just a finger, so... So, <laughs> so whatever they're like, yeah. If there's anything bigger, they would. Yeah, that makes <laughs> you sense. Take your leg home and barbecue it. <laughs> uh, and then the one other thing, um, I just I love this article. By the way, if you can't tell, one other thing I want to talk about is in that article you talk about this them predicting like a new hipster trend, which is basically eating human meat grown in a lab. Yeah. Uh, specifically celebrity cubes, like taking celebrities' <laughs> DNA and making meat out of it, um, or the favorite parts of a lover. And the leap, at least that I think you're supposed to make, is that you would basically, whomever you're with, you would just take cells of their from their inner cheek. I don't know. I'm, I'm not a medical professional either, but this is how I would do it. Uh, and then you know, take that DNA and then create basically the meat of your significant other in a lab and eat that. Is that is that right? Yeah, I mean, I don't think we're still at the basics of of in vitro meat, but yeah, yeah I yeah. don't know. That's a weird ethical line because technically you're not killing anyone. Yeah, so there's no murder involved. Right. Well, the but cells are alive. I mean, you yeah, don't want to go that route. Yes, but it's not like you're killing like a being. I mean, I kill other people's cells all the time on accident. I guess if I like bump into someone, I'm sure some cells die. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, <laughs> you can be brought up on charges for that. Well, yeah, exactly. I don't know. I think that's an ethical line. 
if somebody offered me human lab meat in the future, I don't know what I would say. Hmm. I, don't, I don't know if we're to that point. Because yeah. part of me is curious on a certain, on a very fundamental, like, base. Well, not that I'd ever act mm-hmm. on it. Mm-hmm. But. See, that's what people, no, no, see, now, now that's what people say. I knew you were cannibal curious. I knew because no one, you made up that word, I'm sure, and I love the word. It's really funny. And I had a feeling, I don't know, I, I was I was reading it and I'm like, I think she's, I think she's into this. I think she, I could see her doing this. Now, obviously, you don't have your answer ready, but I'm predicting here. I I wouldn't. It depends on how how it was sourced, I guess. <laughs> That's the important part. Grass fed, free range human, you'd be all right with. Exactly sourcing. I mean, I'm one. I mean, this is not something that I probably will encounter in my lifetime. Right. Okay. An interesting culinary and ethical question. I think. No, it is, and. and- and I think you kind of explore a lot of these interesting uh, – I mean when it comes to the history of food, I don't think people really kind of consider like what they eat. You know, Even, even on the very base level of how did, peop- how did people start eating the diets that they eat, much less how did that become a food and then the history of like how people eat. You know, There's a couple different levels of that. But it, it's remarkably interesting, way more interesting than I thought, which most of the stuff I'm into it's is. really cool. I mean, I'm really – it's one of the things, this, as somebody who writes books, it, there's always sort of a barrier. When I talk about, oh, like the history of cabbage, people will kind of look at you like, right. ah. Yeah. And then yeah. as soon as you start to explain a lot of the crazy things that have gone into, something will eventually click. It's not obvious at first to a lot of people. Right. Um, it's something that I struggle with a lot of times that people – a, they think it's either a very frivolous field, to be fair, because sometimes it is. <laughs> yeah. Really cares about the potato sometimes. Yeah. But on other, other aspects, like with the chicken, most people on earth encounter a chicken every single day, and very few people know why this is a reality of their life. Right. So I think food history is very interesting because it's, the little things that shape your daily life and how those things came to be. Right. It's a lot more intimate and a lot more, I don't know, tasty, I guess. <laughs> no, that makes perfect sense. Well, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know. I mean, I found it to be fascinating. I mean, for chicken specifically, but I'm guessing that there have to be some other, I mean, this, this couldn't have been the craziest food that you've studied the history of. If you had to pick one, um, of like, how did we get to this point? I mean, even like a kimchi or something, right? Like, how, or the thousand-year-old egg or whatever, the century egg, and I think it's in China. It's a delicacy. Like, how did people start eating an egg that's been aged underground for like a whatever a month or hundred days or whatever it is? Uh, and anything older, if it hasn't been refrigerated for a day, you shouldn't be eating it. But then people, you know, how does that come to be? I mean, I don't know about the century egg. Uh, I'm trying to think. Some of the, I don't know, I guess, I mean, back to my, my forte is the chicken. It's really, it's so weird. People don't get that eating chicken is a really weird phenomenon. The fact that we eat so much chicken is so strange and anyone born before like 1920 would be appalled. Right. Yeah. yeah. The level of our eating habits. It's such a dramatic shift because Americans, at least we ate beef and we ate pork until we wanted to die. Right. Uh, Right. And how we managed to transform this this really difficult to cook, eat, and like really fickle bird that likes to die 
into something that we can basically buy for less than the cost of this production and eat for every single meal is absolutely ridiculous. No, it is an incredible journey. I am surprised because you go through to, you know, you, you have like a chapter and a half or something on how we even got eggs to the level that we have. I'm surprised you haven't looked into the century egg. That feels like right up your alley. Oh, uh, I mean, I guess I, I'm, I'm a little wary because I'm not, I'm not Chinese. I'm not of a different culture. So I, I try to stick to America on uh, that least and give other people okay. the voice okay. to talk about their culture. Um, maybe. Maybe that I'll do some searching after this, but in general, I think that's why I study America most because it's I get it intrinsically. I'm an American, and sort of like my people's food and, right. and how it's evolved. right, right. Well, it, it it's I mean I guess that makes I guess that makes a lot of sense. Um, but I had there had to have been some genesis. Like did I mean because you know you talk about how people probably don't think that food's all that interesting. Uh, you know, there's a, bo- you know, there's a, what did you say? There's a barrier, basically an, an intellectual barrier of entry um, for people to become interested. But I mean, it's one of the three basic needs, right? I mean, you, ha- everyone has to eat. I mean, no one really, obviously, if you had explained the history of air, no one's going to be that excited about it. Um, but people are interested in the, um, in like our, in housing, like that's one of the, you know, protecting from the environment. Uh, shelter as one of the three needs. But food, I think, is probably the most critical on everyone's mind because we, actively have to eat three times a day or more. Um, so I'm actually surprised that people don't think about that a lot, but I guess it's something people take for granted. How did you kind of, why, why did that become such an, uh, can I use the word obsession? Is that all right? Obsession adjacent? <laughs> Is that okay? I mean, I published my own magazine about food history, so it's, but I'm getting a doctorate in food history. It's definitely. <laughs> okay, so we can agree it's an obsession? Yes, okay. very much. Not as, not as much of an obsession as your taste for human meat, but it's definitely a close second, we could agree. Um, exactly. So how did, that, how did that kind of come to fruition? Did you not eat a lot as a child? Were you starved or did you eat too much? No, I mean, so I guess I'm trying to think. Well, my obsession with chicken basically started because I hate chicken. I think it's the worst food on planet Earth. Well, let's go back <laughs> one because, I mean – you know, you had you started all this before you, unless you got into the chicken first and foremost. Is that the first thing you got into? In undergraduate, so my parents are agricultural economists who used to work for the U.S. government. Um, they're retired okay. now. Um, so food has sort of always kind of been a background, and we we are very food obsessed. We like talk about what we've been talking about what we're going to eat for Christmas dinner for like three and a half wow. weeks. <laughs> it's our only topic of conversation. Um. But I think I didn't when I started undergrad. I didn't realize food history was like something you could actually study. Uh-huh. Um, and so I sort of bounced around, did a lot of random things. I thought I was going to be an engineer, and then I took a math class, and that dream died rapidly. <laughs> yeah. And then I remember my junior year, I took a class called the history of dietetics, which is basically the history of what people used to do um, to be healthy, kind of and. It was mainly all about food. Before the advent of modern medicine, you really couldn't do anything besides eat and like mm-hmm. sleep properly to tend to the body. Right. Um, and something just clicked all of a sudden in my mind. It's like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is so cool. And I was endlessly fascinated. Um, and so actually, so for that class, the paper I wrote was The Politics of Vegetarianism in Nazi Germany. <laughs> so basically... Yeah, it, they basically use vegetarianism as like a political weapon, uh-huh. um, and they use it as an excuse to shut down a lot of kosher butcher shops and sort of like this whole idea of like 
um, the perfect German race. If everyone was a vegetarian, it would be great. Um, and Hitler was a vegetarian, but he was a bad vegetarian. Mm. So he cheated a lot. Right. So that is <laughs> um, in his nature, I guess. Yeah. Um, but so yeah, that basically was the first, and I was really into it. And then for my undergraduate thesis, I had to write a big paper to, um, to graduate with my degree. And I wrote about chicken. I was, the whole premise was why do people eat chicken? Um, and fast forward three years later, uh, I turned it into a, a real adult human book after <laughs> yeah, it got real. My readers really liked it. And they said, you should turn it into a book. And I was like, no, I want to go into the real world. And then I quickly realized the real world is a terrible place. <laughs> Take me back to chicken, please. Um, yeah. And that's how it and happened. So that's how it happened. Yeah. And it sort of other research grew from there. And so I was working as a food writer and I always found myself writing, um, wanting to write about the history of foods. I was really bad when I was assigned to do like cultural or interview chef pieces to talk about food trends. I always ended up making it into like an 80 page history of the food trends. <laughs> Um, because your undergrad, it's not in food history, is it? It's you, social theory. Oh wow! I, I guess that's that. That works though. I mean, you know, eating is a social thing. It's you can tell social history from that. Yeah, I mean, it it made sense. Like it was kind of cool because I I got to talk about Foucault and chicken in the same sentence. And right, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's I mean, it, it's really interesting. I'm because the history of chicken is absolutely fascinating. Um, because I mean, I think, you know, you are right. I mean, it's, it's something that we see every day. It, it's, it's so prevalent in our society that I, I think that, you know, people, when I was reading the book, the entire journey from, you know, from where we were, I mean, you go all the way back. Actually, there's, there's a typo on page five. I don't know if you know this, but the Gallic Wars did not take place in the fifth century. They were in the first century. Um, and I want to be the first person to, to mention that to you. Yeah. You're like the seventh. It's really bad. <laughs> Actually, I, I'll tell you what. I know you think I'm a genius right now. I'm the analytical mastermind. That's what they call me. But I did see someone tell you that in another interview. So um, I'm just going to, in the interest of full disclosure, I, I can't take credit for that. I didn't really notice. I'm not a Roman historian, okay? Okay. <laughs> no, that's fair. Uh, but, I mean, you go all the way back, and it's, I mean... The first, the thing that got me hooked on this was I read an article that you did about the chicken nugget. Oh. <laughs> and I mean it's it the history of the chicken nugget itself um could be a novella. Maybe not a whole book, but <laughs> definitely a novella. Uh and and you know, I want to get into Bob ba I'm going to call him Bob Baker, but I think everyone probably calls him Rob Baker. And I also love about him I'm going on a side thing here. Uh, give give me a second. Come with me for a second. I love that his last name is Baker. And that he kind of baked food. Uh, I was hoping you'd be kind of snarky with the last name of Rude, but um, but I'm I'm glad you're not. I love when people's last name represents either their occupation or the type of personality that they have, and it happens quite a bit. <laughs> I mean, I could be bitch here if you want. <laughs> <laughs> you turn it up a notch if you want. Uh, whatever you're comfortable with, I can handle just about anything. Um, so let, let's, let's, let's get into the history of chicken. You seem very amped to get into this. Uh, I don't want, I don't want to put it off any longer. Um, <laughs> so what I didn't know, and, and I guess I should have back at, back way back, you know, before the Gallic Wars, 
people were with one thing you actually one thing you mentioned that was central on that is that the Romans were vegetarians. Is that right? They're definitely not vegetarian. They ate basically everything. Uh, um, there's a really famous Roman cookbook, Apicus Apicius. I'm not really sure how to pronounce it. That was perfect. Um, but it basically has recipes for any anything that has ever been alive. You can cook jellyfish. You can cook dolphins. You can cook flamingos. Wow. They literally ate everything. Wow. Yeah. There's a cookbook for – I mean that's crazy. Uh, for anything? <laughs> I mean probably not. They've had their limits. but What? Right. Basically they ate lots of things that we would never touch Wow. in these days. That's crazy. I mean and I got to say one of the things that's remarkable about this book, I would say the un- unsung hero of your book <laughs> is you have recipes throughout Every single chapter either begin or well, definitely begins with a recipe and sometimes ends with a recipe and occasion or maybe this is just the version that I had. But there were recipes throughout, <laughs> throughout the reading. Um, I, I, that was pretty crazy. Did you how much research did you have to do on just recipe books, cookbooks, I guess is what the layman call them? Um, a lot. <laughs> um, yeah. Where do you find them? So um, there's a bunch of really cool cookbook archives around the country. One is at NYU. One is at Harvard. Um, there's a bunch online, too. There's a lot of cool um, – I think it's called – I can't remember what it's called. There's like – but there's basically – one of the universities in Michigan has just has an archive of, of probably all of the significant cookbooks in American history. Um, and they're just all online and all accessible. Um, so it did take a lot of research, but it's also I'm I'm very well versed with these archives, so it probably takes me a little less time than other other people would. <laughs> right. Well, and and one thing I want to mention before we get into the history of chicken, this is how I mean you're gonna have to. I, and in the book, you talk about all these things, but hopefully we'll get to them. But from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong about any of these, but you basically put at the feet of chicken the chicken phenomenon. Uh, it's involved with destroying the auto auto industry in Detroit. Uh, it's the centerpiece um, of several deals with post-Cold War Russia. And as yeah. a matter of fact, the chicken trade is the barometer of our relations with Russia currently. Um, buffalo chicken changed the entire global chicken trade in the 60s. Uh, yes. egg, wars, <laughs> egg wars were started in San Francisco. And Nazi POWs were used to produce chicken. Uh, those are some pretty bold claims. <laughs> I hope you're ready to back them up because that's pretty – that's like world-changing. Uh, yeah, I mean, the chicken is an important little bird. <laughs> it, re- it really is. It didn't start out like that. Um, and so let's go back. So let's go back to Rome for a second. So they ate everything. But there was this belief that there's this belief in beef. Uh, I think that that's a great bumper sticker. The belief in beef, that beef is what made people strong. And the English were really into this whole idea. And so they were, they ate a lot of beef, raised a lot of cattle, and then brought mm-hmm. that to the Americas. I mean, am I, am I, summer, yes, summer, that's summary. And I think, and so, so beef was considered masculine. And if I had to sum up your entire book in one <laughs> sentence, I think I've done it. Tell me how I did. Uh, throughout history, chicken has had a masculinity problem, but novelty <laughs> and innovation have changed that in the past few decades. Yeah. That's pretty good. It's pretty good, I mean, right? It's, it's like a thesis statement. It's a little statement. more complex, yeah. Well, of course, <laughs> but, it's a little more. It's a 193 or 200 page new, you know, more nuanced to that. But that's not bad, right? Yeah, I mean that is. I mean, I would add masculinity and also just sort of a growing problem. Chickens just tend to die. That is a big oh, problem. I see. Right, right. So it was like combination, like when you could get chicken, 
you didn't want to eat it, but it was also really hard to get chicken to be in with. Got it. But I mean, I think initially people really didn't see chicken as like the masculine thing to eat. People were, you know, um, they wanted to eat beef. They saw, t- and and you talk about uh, gallon gallonism. Is that am I saying that gallonism, right? Gallonism. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. I mean, basically before we had nutrition science, which is, I mean, people didn't even know what a calorie was until um, the Germans applied it to food in the mid-19th century. Right. Um, so before that, people ate according, at least people in Europe. I mean, there's a lot of different other health ideas around the ancient world, but in Europe at least, they ate according to the ideas of, of Galen, who was a um, an ancient, I believe, Greek physician, Greek or Roman Gosh, my! I need to work on my for a historian. My master my of details. Lord, really yeah, <laughs> Greek or Rome, one or the other. Yeah, he was an old dude, <laughs> and he um, yeah came up with the idea that basically all of the world is comprised of four humors, uh, the four elements: earth, wind, fire, and water. Um, and the human body is two, and so you needed to eat according to your temperament. Um, so certain people had more of a certain humor in their bodies. Certain people, uh, were more fiery. They had more collar in their body. Um, certain people were more sanguine and they were ruddier. And so they had more, more of the heat in their body. Oh, not heat. Uh, one of the other ones, <laughs> basically you just had to eat according to your temperament. And so different foods would match your temperament. Um, and so beef was obviously, it was a strong food. It provided lots of good humors, um, and so it was a food you'd eat in strength. And that is because people saw the cow it was a big, burly animal. Obviously, it had all of these characteristics that they would culturally put on it. Um, a chicken, by contrast, doesn't really inspire the same awe, I think, as a, as a big British cow. Right. Um, well, if someone calls you a chicken, that's not particular. That's the exact opposite of being masculine. Yeah, exactly. Even though chickens are quite fierce, to be fair. Sure. Um, well, for their size. Yeah, and, and and all of the cock like cockfighting has has been right. one of the world's major sports for for thousands upon thousands of years. Right. Um. But so chickens, yeah, people saw the chicken and it was a weak food. Um. It was a food for for women, for scholars, um, for sick people, for those in society that are that are not as burly or as masculine or as strong as the people who needed to eat beef. Um. And so this is uh, in some ways, the origin of why you eat chicken soup when you're sick. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the perfect food for a sick person. And so as a result of all of these beliefs, obviously you wouldn't eat chicken when you're healthy. Why would you eat a food that would harm your body? Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it became sort of like a secondary food. It's not something that was desired in any way um, for a very long time until ideas of what was healthy changed dramatically in the past 50 years, basically. Right. Um, so yeah, so people didn't eat chicken because it wasn't good for them. For a very Allegedly. long time. Right. Well, and you say that they're fierce. One other there's a couple a couple other facts of the book uh that I'm gonna I'm gonna give away for free if that's all right. <laughs> yeah, it's not gonna ruin the book by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> but you say that that the that the the modern bird, or at least chickens in general, are descendants of Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> Back that up and don't say because it it's an old animal. Um well, oh god, my actually my current roommate is a biological anthropologist and he 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 says my claim is not nuanced enough (laughs) Uh, but basically yes birds are descendant of dinosaurs um and so the chicken is is a raptor and so it's one of the what it could have been the descendant of a brontosaurus or like a you know oh it's just or a pterodactyl 
I need to I need to bone up on the exact history of that. Oh man, <laughs> uh, man I, w- I really was I was hoping because I thought maybe you could like take their DNA and then we could reverse engineer think, and make it Jurassic Park. I think Park. there is a phylogeny associated it, but I thought I knew what I was talking about, and then my roommate, the actual scientist, destroyed me. So, <laughs> <laughs> so there's a do you have, are you going to issue a new edition of your book with all the mistakes taken out, um, or will it be um, significantly shorter? Will it go from I got two hundred to hundred pages? Not that many mistakes. Okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. Those are two. Those are two um, fun ones. I like the. I like the Tyrannosaurus Rex. I think it's exciting. Um, and I, I think love. It, the, it is true on a certain level, but my. I think my roommate said it was not. Sure. Not nuanced enough for a scientific explanation. <laughs> well, now, now, what about your claim that T Rex would taste like chicken? Oh, that it's, it's a really funny um, study. I mean, it was like a joke scientific study that basically. Um, um, somebody ate according to the to the the current um, tree of life, basically, and like okay. characterized the flavors. Oh, wow. um, and he okay. found that sort of like the chicken and the fish flavor have more similar than the the red meat. So he found that the all the animals that taste like red meat had a different um, different origin, basically, on the tree of life. And so the branch that led to to the current uh, chicken and chicken flavored things like alligator and all of those things um are the descendants more direct descendants of of dinosaurs than the red meat animals so so you so did you kind of so did you kind of pick tyrannosaurus rex just kind of like as everyone will know that is and it's a a cool dinosaur i think i I, I, (laughs) full disclosure i wrote this like four years ago so my brain is not fully um in it but i think i think the person in the study mentioned tyrannosaurus rex so okay they, they i took probably. it from them okay no that's fair and and one of the other things that you that you you solve probably one of mankind's greatest <laughs> questions in this book i mean no hyperbole at all this is this has been plaguing mankind since they've been able to think and you solve it and that is <laughs> what came first the chicken or the egg and your conclusion um, the egg, uh, right? The egg, yeah. You didn't know. You were. You didn't even know for a second. No, I didn't know. Did you? Okay. <laughs> yeah, it was laid by an animal that wasn't quite a chicken. I didn't solve this. Biologists solved this, and so I, I take my, my answers from them. Okay. But yeah. But that's the answer. That's it. Mm-hmm. So egg. we're done thinking about that. Yep. Solved. Okay. Well, that's that's great, and that's <laughs> one of the few. You know, that's one of the many problems you solve, uh, in this book. But, you know, you mentioned earlier that you're a vegetarian. I have to think that it must have been particularly uncomfortable to be constantly researching, um, I mean, basically the history of how much meat we eat and how we get that meat, which involves on a mass and factory level killing um, an animal for food across the globe. That must have been terribly uncomfortable for you. Um, not really. <laughs> Really? Uh, I became a vegetarian when I was eight years old um, because I just didn't like it. I, I just don't like the, I mean, primarily the texture of meat. I eat meat now, but only on occasion when I know it'll be really good. Um, so I've just never liked it. It wasn't really an ethical thing. I mean, now in retrospect, yes, I was a very impassioned, intelligent um, eight-year-old. Um, but yeah, for some reason, it doesn't really bother me. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm callous. I mean, I care and I obviously don't want to contribute to it as much as I can, but it's sort of, it's an aspect of humanity that's existed for all of our life. I mean, I've, 
as a vegetarian, I have witnessed plenty of cows and pigs and chickens being slaughtered. Um, and it doesn't, I don't know. It just seems, it just seems it's horrible and it's not fun, but it just sort of an, an aspect of, of humanity, I guess, that I don't think many other people encounter, which I think is a pity. But you're starting to sound a little bit like this. So, so the, the, the death just washes over you and you in, in it, you don't feel anything. Well, you also oh, want to no, eat human I do, meat. So. I, do, I do feel something. I just, I just, is it joy? Is the feeling joy that you feel? <laughs> when you... No. It's, it's more, I'm so, it's just sort of like um, th- this is sort of reality for a lot of, this is how people eat. You know, this is, right. you can't really shy away from it. And sort of, I wrote this book not because I wanted it to be a vegan diatribe where it was like, why do all the evil people brutalize chickens and then murder them and then feast upon their flesh? Right. Um, I wanted to understand why we have this system and right. why does it exist in this way right. and not in any other way? Because I don't think farmers go out there every day. They're like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make a chicken's life miserable and then feed it to people. You know, it's, it's sort of people are demanding these meats people eat these meats every day um and they have for thousands upon thousands of years um yeah and just sort of understanding how this system came about well it definitely reads it's definitely a history book in that respect so it it doesn't come off as like any kind of like PETA sponsored diatribe but i mean it's you know it it is interesting because when you know you say the modern farmer and it when you look in when you know, I've never been in one, but uh, you know the way you describe it and things I've seen on TV. It's a highly advanced technological system where essentially you get chicks, and seven weeks later they're ready to go. You call the chicken the most efficient meat producer. Basically, the let me see if I can find exactly what you say because it's a great quote. Um, basically, it's the it's the largest, the best meat producer on the planet. Is that is that right? Yeah, I mean the chickens in agriculture—they talk about the meat to uh, the feed to meat ratio. Basically, how much do you have to feed an animal with how much food you get out? And the chicken, when, as I wrote this, it's probably improved. It's one point nine two pounds of feed, um, which is ridiculous. No other animal kind of gets close. Um, I think, on one hand, it's—I um, mean, to be obvious, I don't want to put my own opinions out there that much, but it, I mean, it is. I mean, horrifying on a certain level, because I think there's obviously lots of things that can be improved in terms of animal welfare, in terms of animal slaughter, in terms of hygiene. Um, But on the other level, it is absolutely incredible. We've basically out-biologied biology. biology. Uh, I, I say this in the book, but a human chicken grows so fat, I mean, not fat, but so large, so fast, that if it was a human child that was born six pounds, within two months it would weigh 600 pounds. That's how fast we've managed to make modern chicken growth. And there's no hormones involved. There's no genetic engineering. This is 100% us just manipulating nature the old-fashioned way with food and breeding um, and technological hen houses. Um, and, and, and at a certain level, so, I mean... I get a lot of flack for this because I think a lot of people who are interested in food are are very much in sort of like the farm to table organic movement back to the land, which I find is a very kind of bourgeois upper middle class way to view food. Basically, people are going to eat meat. People want their meat to be cheap. And 
meat is one of the primary factors that is currently destroying our entire planet. Um, it is one of the biggest contributors to climate change. Uh, just the methane emitted from cattle, uh, the land cleared to graze animals, the land cleared to raise food for animals. Um, it's an incredibly damaging system. And if we can, people are not going to stop eating meat anytime soon. I'm well aware of this. Um, and the amount of meat that people are going to eat is not going to shrink anytime soon. I mean, I know in the U.S., like veganism, vegetarianism on the rise, but in the rest of the world, people are wanting to climb the protein ladder because they just have more money and they're going to spend it on meat. Um, and so I think, obviously, there's a lot of things that can be improved about industrial chicken, but at the same time, it is the most efficient way to make animal protein. And if you are going to only pay so much money for protein, I think the least damaging way is the way to go. Um, well, I'm, I'm going to challenge you on that for a second mm -hmm. because I'm going to say I've got another solution mm -hmm. and, and mine's going to be less popular than yours, <laughs> probably on the order of how, how much humans. No. <laughs> well, yeah. So here's the thing, because what you're what you're basically attacking is a symptom of the problem, right? The symptom of the problem is there's too many beeping human beings on the planet and, and we don't stop producing and we don't stop breeding and we're destroying everything. And, and like, I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not calling for a culling of the human race, but we should definitely, I mean, I but mass sterilization, I think is definitely on the table. I mean, I wouldn't, I think that's in the same, same realm of argument. But, no, sure, of course it is yeah. because you're saying, because you're saying like, well, we don't want to affect human population. God forbid we should put any restrictions on how many human beings are on the planet. But what we should do is affect what they eat. And, you know, that's a direct – the food is exactly what makes human beings grow and produce. So, um, you know, I mean there is definitely a, a, a link there, I would say. Obviously, you're not going to be the one who, who offers that solution. You're a food historian. You're going to talk about <laughs> food. Uh, I don't have that, that handcuff, so I can say uh, there's too many people on the planet, and no one wants to address that because that's to, – to address that would inherently go against our own survival instincts. Um, but that, that's the problem. And because there are so many people, they have dietary requirements. And of course, no one, you know, if you had people and you said, Hey, look, you want to go eat? Okay, fine. You want chicken? You want beef? Okay, cool. You go out and you kill it with your bare hands. Um, and, and let's see what the food to table looks like, you know? And I think you would see a big change when you start, you know, basically sterilizing the process, um, you know, I think it becomes a little different. I can go on a vegetarian diatribe, even though I'm not a vegetarian. I eat very little meat, um, but I'm going that way. But, you know, I will say it so you don't have to. Um, but but that, those are my feelings on the subject. But in you, to your point, if we're going that way, chicken is remarkably efficient. So if, the, if yeah. this is the way to go, I, I, I'm, I'm on board with you. Um, and I think the way that we got there is absolutely fascinating. And I want to talk about one thing. So this may be controversial, um, and that's okay, because I think we've, you know, once we, once we hit human meat right off the bat, I think we <laughs> kind of opened the door. But I found this to be absolutely fascinating. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's, so we have to just, we have to walk tricky waters here, okay? So help me walk the line properly, if that's okay. May, may I ask for your guidance in that? Okay. Okay. So one of the things that you talk about, which I thought is fascinating, is you, you kind of explain an age-old stereotype of African-Americans loving chicken, which uh, I love the, the way you explain it because the answer is significantly <laughs> less racist and extraordinarily empowering because essentially people became entrepreneurs 
Um, and this happens a lot of time where a, a ruling class will tell, will have something be off limits. They don't want to deal with whatever X problem is. There's a group of people who figure out a way to make that thing profitable for them. And then all of a sudden, the man wants to get cut in on it. And that's exactly what happened with chicken. Can you explain it? Yeah. So chicken for a long time had the weird dichotomy of being both a food for the very, very rich and a food for the very, very poor. Uh, basically, if you didn't farm yourself, chicken was so hard to get in sort of commercial quantities that it was incredibly expensive and an incredible luxury. So people in cities, it used to be more expensive than sirloin steak and lobster. It was the most expensive meat. Um, but on the contrast, keeping chickens yourself is not that resource intensive. So a lot of very, very poor people are able to access chicken. Um, and this was very much true in the American South. Um, it was actually part of the slave code in the South that slaves were not allowed to have um, cows and hogs and horses, the big livestock, basically because owners were afraid that these people who basically had nothing were going to steal their livestock. I mean, slaves had to eat. They were not often given enough food, so they would steal, which is obvious reaction to the problem. Um, but they were allowed to keep chicken because chickens were not considered to be very valuable in any way. Um, and so a lot of uh, slaves became entrepreneurs, and so they would raise chickens, and then they would sell the eggs to their masters, or they'd be given permission to go into town and start selling cooked chicken. Um, and it sort of became a way of literal empowerment. They had money. They had income for the first time. Um, and so it allowed them to, a lot. sometimes in some instances, uh, they were enabled to purchase their own freedom, which is ridiculous that you have to buy yourself. Um, but chicken became sort of an outlet for them to gain power in whatever limited ways that they could. Well, and, um, and, and even, you know, you talk about chicken thieves, but I mean, you also mentioned that Mark Twain was a chicken thief. I mean, this was going on, you know, lots of people were stealing chickens. And you also mentioned that chickens, they weren't even on the inventory of a person's farm. They, they had so little value, no one even like registered that they existed. Yeah. So yeah, the, the, the kind of the trope of the chicken thief is, is a really um, kind of dark mark on American history and, and American legal history, too. Uh, basically, everyone in America stole chickens. That was sort of a thing that happened, as I said. They're, they're not valuable. They were everywhere, pretty easy to steal. Um, but the problem is that it became sort of an easy way to attack and, um, uh, what is it, put in jail, uh, African-Americans just because it was a crime that was so common and, and you could easily catch them. You could easily catch anyone stealing chickens, but African-Americans seem to be the ones who got the biggest rap. Uh, it's crazy. There's a court case in Virginia. I can't remember what years, but basically they thought it was okay to put a chicken on the stand to testify that oh, right. this is the person who had stolen ex their, I think their child, their chicks or something. So it was ludicrous. Um, uh, and it basically just sort of just became a, a means to put black people in jail. It, it's ridiculous. Up until, I think, the 1930s or 1940s, there were laws in Oklahoma that basically allowed the state to sterilize chicken thieves. Like, if you were a murderer, if you were a bank robber, if you had raped someone, you would go to jail. But if you were a chicken thief, the state had the right to sterilize you. And that was basically a codified way to say if you were African-American and you were caught for a very basic, low-level, insignificant crime, the state had this much power over you. Um, 
and yeah, it just it just sort of became a whole whirlwind of of the law, racism, and chickens that sort of entrapped people. Wow, that's dark. That's really yeah, dark. It's, well, not a good chapter. No, no, it, it isn't. But that's how. But that's how the negative stereotype kind of evolved. But the actual root, the the facts of the history are actually pretty incredible and and incredibly empowering. As a matter of fact, the, a testament to how successful and empowering that it was is that it required the government to step in and take away that power. I mean, that's how that's how much that that's how well that former slaves used to chickens to empower themselves. I mean, that's that's it's kind of incredible feat. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> No, I mean, really, like, if you can do something that will make the government so angry that they, that they make, that they put chickens on a stand and put you to jail for it because yeah. they can't do it any other way, you've done something right, in my opinion. I mean, yeah, I guess. But then again, you get thrown into jail by a chicken. Of course. So. Right. Right. I'm not suggesting that this, we should go back to this. I'm just saying yeah, yeah, yeah. that there's, that's an, there's an incredible amount of power and you, that's a huge success, in, in my opinion. Um, and, and I think that, you know, that even continued. There was a, a group of people who, um, I think there were black women who, um, basically made chicken for, um, soldiers getting off of a, of a train at a train stop. Then they make, is that, that's, that's a story. Right? Yeah. In, in Gordonsville, Virginia, it became known as the, um, the fried chicken capital of the world. Basically, um, women, African-American women would, there weren't built in restaurants or anything along train tracks. And if they were generally the food was pretty bad. Um, so a lot of entrepreneur African-American women would come and serve hot food to people on the train as they were stopping by. And one of those foods was fried chicken. Um, and for whatever reason, these women were really good at fried chicken. So they became very famous. So people would go out of their way to go through Gordonsville for a chance to eat this particular fried chicken. Um, the town actually has a fried chicken festival still every year that I would like to go to. Um, I mean, that's another, that's a great aspect. I mean, you know, it's become known as the fried chicken capital. Uh, I mean, that's pretty incredible. And, and, and so you, you have, you know, chicken obviously is, and at the time, so we're going to do like a a quick fast forward here. So at the time, uh, let's just fast forward a couple, a couple of centuries. Um, you know, chickens were, they didn't have a lot of meat on them, which is kind of why people didn't care about them. Um, male chickens had absolutely, I imagine, zero value since they didn't have a lot of meat and they didn't lay eggs. So uh, through the course of a couple of innovations, let's, let's fast forward through some of the innovations. So obviously eggs were valuable. There's kind of two tangents that you, or two roads, I should say, that you go on here. Chicken for the meat and chicken for eggs. Is that, that's kind of true, right? Yeah, so before industrial farming, chicken and eggs were sort of like a combination. They were all together. You just had a flock that did both. I mean, chickens were mainly kept for their eggs, and you'd only eat a, kill a chicken when it was the spring hatch and you had a lot of extras, um, or a chicken was really old and it was time. Um, and so it wasn't until uh, the 1870s when somebody in, invented, somebody in California actually invented an artificial incubator. Um, that actually worked <laughs> before they tried all these crazy things. Cause basically when you, when a chicken lays an egg, she will, um, she will sit around until she lays enough and then she'll have to sit on it for a bunch of weeks and then eventually she'll hatch. And so the whole process of getting new chicks, uh, takes probably two to three months. Um, 
but she won't lay any more eggs while she's doing this. So basically sort of not economically efficient on a certain level. Um, and so the trick is to take the eggs away from her. But if you don't have a, an incubator that works, there's no point because they'll just they'll get cold and die. Um, so a man in, in California in the 1870s invented the world's first artificial incubator, um, which just sort of revolutionized egg egg laying the world over. Because now you could you could have chickens constantly laying eggs that you could be either taking and selling or hatching to get more eggs uh, to get more chickens. Um, and so that was the advent of the industrial chicken uh, chicken egg in the 1870s in California. But you could, didn't get industrial meat chicken until the 1920s. This was for various reasons, uh, the biggest being just sort of um, chicken medicine. Uh, chickens, as I've said probably a million times already, said chickens just like to die. They're not a very sturdy animal. And so if you get them in large numbers, that would be commercially viable on any level they'll just all get a disease and all all kick the bucket at once um but it wasn't until the 1920s uh when there'd been advances in not only in the medicine so now you can inoculate chickens you could keep them in large groups um and they won't get sick and die and you could also you also had advances in uh chicken nutrition basically using chickens it was a chicken experiment um they discovered uh uh, the concept of vitamins. And so they discovered that um, if you give chickens vitamin D, you can keep them inside without the sun. And they won't develop this thing called leg weakness where they also sort of collapse on themselves and die. It's um, like rickets. It's like a chicken. Yes, chicken exactly. Rickets. Chicken rickets. Um, and so you get the perfect combination of, of, of feed, of um, medicine, and you also get the advent of cities and railroads. So you can transport chickens really quickly. And so it was in the 1920s in Delaware that you, for the first time, get sort of chicken as meat is something that people could grow and enjoy. Well, one of the things that's crazy is you talk about how when a chicken hatches, you can actually, they don't need to eat for 48 hours because I guess they eat the egg, the, you know, whatever's left that isn't them Mm -hmm. inside the egg, basically. Yeah. Uh, and then you can kind of stick them in a crate and transport them on railroads, which is a really weird concept. Uh, yeah. but, but obviously that, that helped out quite a bit. You could, I mean, it was like buying an ant farm, essentially. You could send away for chickens, chicks, and then they would come to you in like a crate and then voila, ta-da, there's your, yeah. your chicken flock. Um, and one thing that's crazy, just to, to put a little button on the, the egg thing, is I think it's by 1920 – uh, they had egg laying competitions to see how 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 far can we push these chickens to create eggs. So it was a hundred eggs that was in a year, which is pretty good. And then I mm-hmm. think by like the thirties, it was up to two hundred eggs. And then now the average chicken lays two hundred and sixty five eggs a year, which is almost yeah. one a day. And they kind of trick the eggs or trick the chickens by because they lay an egg when the light comes on, uh, the light being light coming on being the sun <laughs> when when God turns the light on the earth uh, in the world. Uh, but they kind of replicate that in in a lab by turning off the light and turning it back on, and so you can get them to lay two eggs a day or something like that, which is kind yeah. of messed up. Uh, I mean, essentially, chickens are really like the greatest mass scientific experiment of the past century. That's what I gathered from your book. I mean, like, yeah. you have all these like Dr. Frankensteins essentially creating the perfect chicken. So, so we got eggs taken care of, right? So that's you know that's how that's where we are with eggs. 
And then with the meat process, there are lots of really fascinating things that kind of went into this. Starting, you know, 1873, you talk about um, a breeding Bible, which is how you can kind of breed a prize-winning bird. But then in 1946, this went a step further, and there's a contest called the Chicken of Tomorrow Contest. Uh, put on by the Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company, which I've never heard of. I don't know if they're still around. Uh, talk about uh, talk about that particular contest and its um, effects on the ripple effects on the chicken industry. Yeah. So, uh, so basically, um, it, it was it was World War II. Um, all of the meat, because we still thought that the fighting men only needed red meat. You know really important. So all of the meat was basically sequestered and sent to Europe and to Asia and to all the front lines. Um, and I do want to pause was- you because in, in, just want to insert really quickly. Because of that, all of our men were uh, overseas fighting during World War II. And this, you, I'm going to put up a link to your incredible article. We actually imported Nazi and Italian POWs to come here and do all the chicken work because we didn't have um, an infra- a male-dominated infrastructure to do all that heavy labor. Yeah, we had it. It was weird. I, that was something I didn't know that we had POWs on U.S. soil. I did a lot of farm labor. I didn't either. But that's a little side note. Um, I'll put up a link. So insert if you want to pause the podcast, go read that article and then come back in. All right, go ahead. Yeah. So basically, all the red meat was in Europe, and then they're realizing, oh uh, no, we need more meat because obviously all of Europe needs a lot of food. So they started taking chicken. Um, and so they started at first they 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 actually invaded Delmarva like the army stopped Delmarva is like the little peninsula of Virginia, Maryland and Delaware and sort of hangs off the side and that's where the, the sort of the chicken capital of the world was at this time and so the army basically cut off access to that entire peninsula and just took all the chickens and so they could use it for army purposes uh, and that wasn't even enough so they just started investing all this money into chicken chicken production all this stuff uh, but then as soon as the war ended no one wanted to eat chicken anymore. Uh, basically, that election was called the Great Beef Steak Election because the number one issue was how slow rationing was and how slow people, uh, the government was at getting people their meat again. Um, and so after the war, chicken consumption plummeted, but all these farmers and the U.S. government had just invested all of this money into chicken breeding that apparently no one wanted to eat anymore. So the government was like, damn, we need to get people to eat more chicken. And so they thought, oh, the best way would be sort of let's make a chicken that can compete with like a juicy pork shop or a big steak on the grill um, as sort of like a big hunk of meat that people actually desired. Uh, Chicken at this time, I don't know if you've ever encountered a non-industrial bred chicken, but they're very, very different. They're very scrawny. The breast is basically non-existent. The thing you want to eat on a non-industrial chicken is the legs or the wings because they have the most flavor. Um, And so they wanted to see how can we make this scrawny bird into a really fat, juicy one. So they held a competition. Um, It's really funny. If you go on YouTube, there's a – I think it's a – what is that? Um, Mystery Science Theater. Yeah. I think those guys do like a spoof on it. Um, they just watch the they do a chicken of tomorrow chicken film. Oh, really? Yeah, like the chicken of of tomorrow promo film. I think it's them. I can't remember, um, but it's hilarious. Uh, it's just basically ridiculous, like a chicken queen and all these chickens that have been bred to be the fattest they could possibly be. Um, but anyway, the summary of this competition is basically the winner of this chicken of tomorrow competition. Well, it actually wasn't the winner. It was the second place one because the winner was red 
And red chickens actually leave the feathers leave stains on the meat, which people don't like. But if you have a white chicken, you don't see that. You don't see stains. You don't see all the pin feathers, all the little feathers in the meat. Um, so the second place chicken basically became the ancestor of a vast majority of the chickens we eat today. I think something close to 80 to 90% of all industrial chickens are descendant from this one bird from this competition. Um, so it was very dramatic. It basically revolutionized uh, chicken breeding on the planet because um, now you had a chicken that, that was bred specifically so it had the giant breast meat that people were starting to covet. And actually the, the person who – the, the chicken of tomorrow – ended up being the offspring of the first place winner and the second place winner, right? No, it was just the second place winner. Oh, was it? I thought there was like some kind of one. I thought the first one had traits that were desirable. So just the second place became. Yeah, um, because second one was white. Right. And okay. the first one was not white. Okay. So. Um, that's, that's pretty incredible. I mean, when you think about that, they're all basically genetic clones. I mean, this is almost mass cloning in a weird <laughs> way, right? I mean, not really, but kind of. Yeah, I mean, they're very, I mean, this is an issue that a lot of chicken farmers are dealing with now. They're all so genetically similar that their disease resistant is non-existent, basically, which is right. why they have to give them lots of medication. And by medication, um, you mean antibiotics in their feed? Well, antibiotics, that's a very, that's a, a whole nother game, actually, because antibiotics were first, I mean, now, obviously, I, they're being used to to prevent disease, but they were actually originally put in feed on an accident, um, basically it was discovered that of, of the many things that chicken needed, of the many vitamins, B12 was found to be essential to chicken growth, I think in the 1940s. Um, and so obviously farmers immediately became giving chickens, uh, vitamin B, uh, supplements in their feed. And there were two types of, of supplements on the market and farmers were finding that, that one was fine, but the other one was basically chicken miracle grow. Like their chickens were growing crazy fast, crazy well. Um, and obviously, uh, agriculture scientists did a little digging, um, and it wasn't the vitamin itself. It was that it was made in these vats, basically, uh, I can't remember the exact process, but basically they had residues of antibiotics on them because it was made by a pharma company and it was the antibiotics that for whatever reason just made chickens grow three, uh, basically three times as fast with a third less feed, um, and like a third less mortality, something like that. Basically, antibiotics in a just became something that farmers gave their chickens to supplement their growth initially because chickens just grow really fat really fast on antibiotics. So antibiotics were – it's kind of like a pen, the penicillin of the chicken world essentially. It's like this accident that happened that had incredible – well, on the surface had incredible benefits um, but had a dark underbelly um, – that I think is true with most of these kind of like strange accidents, um, these technological and chemical advancements, at least my opinion. Um, so you, so you, you have lots of, I mean, what's incredible about this is that you really start creating this incredibly efficient, uh, growing mechanism. And now you can have, you know, these huge flocks. And one of the things I wanted to mention really quickly is, is you talk about with these, you know, you have a thousand person flocks. Chickens are known for having a pecking order where we get the name. And so they, they can peck each other to death, which is crazy. But now you have them in these cages. And because they're getting so big, bigger than any, basically bigger than their bodies can handle, um, they get, they get stressed out and they can start pecking each other and they even can become cannibals. Um, I imagine that that aspect greatly appealed to you. 
Is that true? Um, I mean, not. I mean, it's they're quite violent. I don't know if you've spent much time with chickens, but I they're haven't. mean. Are they're they? mean animals. Well, they, like, they will. They will. They will. I mean, I I won't go that far, they're but jerks. they they will kill and and eat each other. Um, <laughs> especially like just even when they're not in a in a confined space, like chickens will peck each other to death. It's actually, I mean, farmers have known this is a problem for a long time, so they try to um, cull their particularly aggressive chickens because they don't want to lose other ones and cut off their beaks which i learned from your book yeah so that's the thing that they do now to control it is they just like snip off they use a hot hot iron and just sort of take off the beaks so if you can't if you can't you don't have any sharp to kill other chickens with it's hard to kill the chickens i guess so i mean even chickens know that they taste delicious uh they can't even get away from it all right that's, that's gross um so you know this book has got everything uh chickens have changed basically every major uh, every any major historical event in the in the past 3000 years chickens have been involved with somehow um but this book has got you know you talk about chicken sunglasses chicken contacts uh, how KFC is huge in Japan the making of Mr McDonald which is a very specific chicken for chicken nuggets uh there's a lot in this book um, and, and there's a man that we need to talk about, uh, Rob Baker, who essentially created chicken nuggets before chicken nuggets were a thing, and also tons of other chicken-based food products. Uh, do you have time to stick around and talk to me about him? Yeah, happy Bonus to. <laughs> awesome. All right, we're going to get to that. Um, but I highly recommend this book. It's called Tastes Like Chicken. Uh, is there a subtitle? A History of America's Favorite Bird. There you go. America's Favorite Bird. Uh, unless you're in a specific state, because a lot of states have their own birds. But as America, for, move over, <laughs> bald eagle. The chicken just yeah. moved into town. Uh, chicken has been around for a while. <laughs> it has been. Incredible book. And uh, I, I highly recommend everyone read it. I'm going to have links to all this stuff on the page. How can people get in touch with you if they want to point out more spelling errors or oh, want no. to somehow smuggle you some human meat from, from, an un, from, a, you know, from the, the black market? How can they get in touch with you? Well, if there's errors, it wasn't me. It was my editor. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, I have a website. It's uh, www.emelinrude.com. Okay. And there's a contact page on there. Okay. You can social send media. me all of your angry emails. What about or, social media? Do you do that? Social media at emmerrude, E-M-E-R-R-U-D-E. On which platforms? Uh, Twitter and Instagram, although oh. I don't really use Twitter, but I'm there. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, I'll put all those links onto the uh, under the on your webpage. I'll put them on the webpage on fascinatingnouns.com. Emily, thank you so much for being on the program today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Now, while I have your attention, make sure to go to fascinatingnouns.com to subscribe to the show to never miss an episode. Scroll to the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage and you'll find links to the show's tune in Google Play, iTunes, and Stitcher accounts right there. And also check out the show on social media. 
You'll find links right next to there to Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, YouTube, all at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. You can even sign up for a newsletter and learn about behind the scenes, upcoming episodes, and and even all kinds of stuff, even other other podcasts that I'm doing, like Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies, my latest podcast where I take pop culture technology, sit down with a team of experts, some who have appeared on this show, and we talk about how we can make these things a reality. We've got Frank. Frankenstein's Monster, we got the T-1000 Everlasting Gobstopper, and coming up on Season 2, we've got Portable Holes, the Hoffman Glasses from They Live, it's a cult favorite, and even the brooms from Harry Potter. Go to fgbt.com. that's fgbt.com. one more time, fgbt.com to learn all about this show, listen to past episodes, get the upcoming ones, and if you like both of those shows, you're going to love everything I do, go to danieljglenn.com to find out all about my projects. Thank you for listening. End of transmission. Thank you.